0: The response from the BHP community has been fantastic. Thank you so much to everyone who's written to me and who have put out the word to their friends and on social media. You're all amazing, and the show wouldn't have a chance without you. So far, about 20% of you have switched over your membership from Amazon to PayPal. And thank you so much for that. We still need the other 80% to switch over, so if you hear this, please go to the thebritishhistorypodcast.com and sign up again. If you're already a yearly member and are making the switch, make sure you email me and let me know you'd like a prorated refund when you sign up with PayPal. I handle all your memberships and emails manually, and it is only me. So if you don't let me know you'd like a refund, you might slip through the cracks. And if you don't hear from me in two days' time, send me an email at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com. Because there's a possibility that there's something wrong with the email address I have on hand, and I just can't get a hold of you. For those of you who have ever thought about signing up to become a member, but haven't yet, now really is the time to do it. Not everyone is going to learn about this in time, so I really could use your help too. As a member, you're going to get access to members-only extras, including exclusive membership episodes, all for about the price of one bottle of your favorite craft beer a month. Currently on the membership feed, we're doing The Fury of the Northman, a series with all the Viking information that doesn't directly pertain to Britain, but it's still really awesome. And of course, you'll get access to all the members' episodes that have been released over the last nearly four years. So if you're current and are tired of waiting for new episodes, this is one way to get some new material to tide you over. Also, for everyone who switches their memberships over or gets themselves a brand new membership, you'll be entered into a raffle for a copy of Civilization 4. I have two available, and I'll send them out to the lucky winners in June. I don't wanna jinx it, but I'm starting to feel pretty hopeful about all of this. Thanks. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 160, An Alpha Inheritance. In this episode, my biggest thank you is to the BHB community, who has really been fantastic. But I would like to extend a special thank you this week to Emily, Lindsay, Marsha, and Killian for really going above and beyond the Call of Duty. Thank you, everyone. King Offa of Mercia has died after a surprisingly long and productive reign. The degree of power he had gathered for himself was truly something to behold. While his reach didn't stretch into Mercia's ancient enemies beyond the Humber, Northumbria, he still had a stunning degree of influence over the English kingdoms in the south. Throughout the history of Britain, Offa will continue to stand out as one of the great island rulers. Really, the only southern English kingdom that appears to have had any degree of independence at the end of Offa's reign was Wessex. But even Wessex was closely tied and allied to Offa as its current king held the throne thanks in no small part to Offa's intervention in their civil war. The kingdom that Offa had bequeathed to his son was a substantial one. However, what was true in the early days of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms still holds true in the late 8th century. This was a time when rule was quite personal. True, Culturally, things had shifted, and there were now a select group of families that seemed to have an exclusive blood claim to the throne. And due to the consolidation of power, it was very difficult, if not impossible, for a true outsider to break that monopoly. But, as they were all too aware of in Northumbria, it was still a time where a king needed the support of his nobles. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to take and hold the throne. No matter how blue his blood was. A king was only as powerful as his support. And now that Offa was dead, the next question is, how much support would his son, Egfrith, receive? Well, Egfrith certainly did have one big advantage. Most of his potential dynastic rivals were dead, thanks to his father's relentless campaign. Based upon how many exiles we hear of, Those who were not dead were probably not living within Mercia, and thus they would have had a hell of a time gaining much support. Further, his father left him another major advantage. Egfrith had been consecrated, which meant that his rule over Mercia was sanctioned by God. Good luck to any rival trying to explain why Mercia should ignore the wishes of God. So King Egfrith looked like he had things pretty well locked up, and it should come as no surprise that it doesn't look like there is any serious challenge to King Egfrid's power. Just as his father had wanted, there would be stability, continuity, and a peaceful transfer of power to his only son. Offa had done it. Even though power was still largely held through personality and the support of the nobility, and even though there was a long history of inter-kingdom warfare and a lack of unity on the island, King Egfrith had successfully inherited a southern hegemony. And then, five months later, on either the 14th of December or the 17th of December, he died. Oops. It appears that he died of natural causes, and given how long his father had reigned, that does make sense. He was probably at least into his middle age by the time he took the throne. Sometimes you're just unlucky and you die early because of illness or a bad heart. But Alcuin saw something else in this death. Quote, You know well how the illustrious king prepared for his son to inherit his kingdom, as he thought, but as events show, he took it from him. Man plans, but God decides. End quote. He also wrote, quote, That most noble young man has not died for his sins, but the vengeance for the blood shed by the father has reached the son. For you know how much blood his father shed to secure the kingdom for his son. End quote. For Alcuin, this was the sins of the father revisited upon the son. It was divine intervention for what he saw as the unmitigated evil of Offa's dynastic purges. And you can see why he might have thought that, because Egfrith died childless. Now, I suppose that would be okay if there was another son to inherit, but Egfrith was Offa's only son. And while Offa did have daughters, they were either married to foreign monarchs or they were prominent figures in the church. So obviously, his cloistered daughters couldn't inherit, and to give the kingdom to his other daughters would be, in essence, giving the kingdom to a foreign king from a foreign dynasty. So in a single stroke, His entire line has been pretty much rendered ineligible for the throne. It does look a bit like divine intervention, doesn't it? The trouble is that Offa had done his job really well. There simply weren't that many other options left out there. He hadn't just trimmed the family tree. He had pretty much just chopped the whole thing down and then burned the stump for good measure. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time, but this was a disaster for Mercia and the Southern hegemony. You can imagine that across the channel, Charlemagne might have been really wishing that he jumped on that intermarriage offer with Offa. If he had, most of Southern England would almost certainly be in his grandchild's hands. Or at the very least, he'd have a claim on it and sanctioned to go take it. And given the chaos that was likely brewing in Mercia, I'm sure that the Mercian nobles would have happily accepted a Carolingian intervention. But without a clear heir in Mercia, the kingdom was ripe for yet another civil war. Not only that, but don't forget that Offa didn't just bequeath Mercia. He, and Egfrith, albeit briefly, had been ruling over an entire southern hegemony. So what about these other kingdoms? Relations with Wessex pretty much died right along with Offa's dynasty. So that's not good. And on Mercia's eastern flank, we see that coins were beginning to be minted in King Aedwal of East Anglia's name. So it looks like the East Angles were breaking from Mercian control as well. Naturally, Northumbria was still less than friendly with their ancient rivals. And don't get me even started on Wales. After decades of conflict, That wasn't likely to die down anytime soon. So that left Mercia friendless on all sides. And then you have the issue of Kent. Kent is one of the oldest of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, has historically had Frankish support as their royal dynasty has been connected to theirs since the days of King Aethelbert, and they really did not like the Mercians. Though, really, who did at this point? Offa was effective, but he wasn't exactly winning any popularity contests. And within Kent, you had the Archbishopric of Canterbury, which was so hostile to Offa that he went to the trouble of installing a Mercian in the see once Archbishop Jambert died. And then you had that whole business with the occasional Kentish rebellions against Mercian control. The Kentish royal dynasty had also been mysteriously disappearing, and there are references that some of its members have been seeking sanctuary with Charlemagne no doubt waiting for some chance to return and regain Kentish independence. Frankly, for much of Offa's reign, it looks like the only way he could maintain control of Kent was by ousting and maybe exterminating the Kentish dynasty, which would explain why he was installing his own Mercian overlords on the throne of Kent. The region was so rebellious that he needed to exercise direct rule over it. A fact, that would not have made Mercia very popular with the remaining Kentish aristocracy, who would have felt that it was their right to rule. So yeah, if there was gonna be trouble, that trouble was almost certainly coming out of Kent. But by the end of Offa's rule, the Kentish dynasty was in tatters. Who was left to rally around and free them from mercy and control? Well, if you've been paying attention to the previous episodes, you can probably guess what's coming. There were some exiles out of Kent, and naturally, at least one of them had been living under the protection of Charlemagne in Francia. Charlemagne always had time and space for anyone with an axe to grind against Offa. Do you remember that kerfuffle between Charlemagne and Offa over a noble named Aidbert Prane? He was the Kentish exile that had been forcibly tonsured, and Charlie not only gave him sanctuary, but allowed him to go to Rome to appeal the tonsuring, and ostensibly regain his claim to the Kentish throne. Well, guess who was crossing the channel? Yep, our friend, Aidbert Prane. It isn't clear at this point whether or not his appeal to Rome had worked. But what we can be sure of is that Eidbert had decided that his tonsuring should not count, and that he was firmly denying his membership in religious orders. So, he crossed the channel and took the Kentish throne, becoming King Eidbert III of Kent. As usual, we don't have any details on how he accomplished this. Did he arrive with Frankish support? Did he have warbands waiting for him when he landed? Was there an existing uprising that, once successful, called for him to cross the channel? Or did he launch an attack in the chaos following Egfrid's death? What happened to the Mercian overlord who was ruling over Kent? These are all open questions because the sources don't elaborate on any of it. But I would imagine that there was probably some degree of Frankish intervention, possibly urging on an existing Kentish uprising. That might have predated Egbert's death. But that is all speculation, and we aren't told anything about it. Instead, what we're told is that upon Ebert Prane's ascension to the throne, Archbishop Aethelherd of Canterbury fled the kingdom. We know this because it really ticked off Alcuin. It's possible that the reason he was so upset was because, by fleeing as he did, the Archbishop was clearly refusing to accept the new king who appears to have been a protege of the Carolingian court. And obviously, Alcuin was quite friendly with the Carolingian court. But I'm not sure exactly what Alcuin expected the Archbishop to do, because it looks like in the course of Ebert's rise in power, the church in Canterbury was sacked. It isn't clear if this was before or after Aethelherd's flight, but whatever the case, it doesn't look like Kent was exactly the safest place for a Mercian. So of course he was going to leg it. And the lack of clarity regarding Eidbert's campaign in Kent aside, it's clear that in a very short space of time, Mercia had gone from dominating the Southern English to being beset on all sides by rivals, who were probably more than a little annoyed at how they'd been treated over the course of the 8th century. This was bad. And it was exactly the time that Mercia really could have used someone from the royal dynasty to step forward, take the mantle of leadership, and reconquer its neighbors. The problem, though, was that there wasn't anyone like that. By wiping out all his rivals, Offa had created a situation where anyone left in the Mercian aristocracy had an equal claim to the throne, and therefore, no one really had standing to take it. It was a mess. And then, Conewolf, son of Cuthbert, stepped up and claimed the throne of Mercia. Who the hell is Conewolf, son of Cuthbert? Well, it looks like he was some sort of elderman from a noble family, since we do see his name as well as his father's name in charters during the reign of Offa. Now you might be saying, big deal, there were other eldermen in Mercia, that doesn't make him all that special. And you'd be right, though Conewolf had an ace up his sleeve. Not only did his name mean Fierce Wolf, which is pretty awesome right there, but he was also from the royal line. He was a descendant of Chenwal, brother of Penda. And if you're saying, who was Chenwal, brother of Penda? You are in good company, because a lot of people have asked that throughout the centuries. We know of Aowa, brother of Penda. But until Conewolf shows up, there just isn't any mention of a third brother. Honestly, Conewolf might as well have claimed to be a descendant of Woden. I mean, there's no other mention of a Chenwall of Mercia anywhere else in the record. The closest we get is Chenwall of Wessex, who married Penta's sister, but he later set her aside, triggering a nasty war between Wessex and Mercia. And maybe that is who he's talking about, but it is a bit of a stretch, and it's hardly something that would set you up for a dynastic claim. But Conewolf did have several powerful brothers. And it looks like he was part of a powerful and wealthy family that were probably connected to the old dynasty of Huissa. So while none of his predecessors reigned as kings of Mercia, who was really going to argue with him? Besides, as Alcuin pointed out in a letter to Kent in 797, hardly anyone who could be linked to the old stock was still around. And so, we now have King Conewolf of Mercia. It isn't clear exactly how he became king. And Alcuin was not exactly a fan. In fact, his later letters describe him as a tyrant and imply that he wasn't even sure if it was possible to peaceably treat with this king. But one thing is clear from the record, and that's the fact that King Conewolf of Mercia began the rule the way I probably would have, and I suspect the way many trained lawyers would have with a series of letters seeking to protect his political flank before he took any military actions. This guy really is a man after my own heart. Did he want Kent back? Sure. Did he see King Aidbert III of Kent as a pretender? Hell yeah. But was he gonna risk getting excommunicated for attacking a Christian kingdom without cause? Absolutely not. I mean, Francia was an ally of Kent. This Aidbert appeared to be a Frankish protégé and the new Pope Leo III was firmly in Charlemagne's pocket. So why would you invite the specter of Frankish military intervention if it could be avoided? So, King Conewolf wrote to Pope Leo, and he argued that King Aidbert III was a priest. And as such, he had given up any claim to temporal titles, and thus he was ineligible to rule. He was also interested in having the See of Canterbury move to London which was still under mercy and control. And of course, he had Archbishop Aethelherd's support in all of this, but of course he would. Aethelherd was homeless at this point thanks to Aidbert's uprising. The trouble was that these letters put Pope Leo in a tough position. The English were a rambunctious people who had only been Christian for a short while. And there were concerns of schisms on the continent. I'm sure the Pope would like to keep them happy And keep them from leaning towards Celtic Christianity in the West. However, the influence that Charlemagne held over the Pope cannot be overstated. And it really looked like Aidbert was Charlemagne's guy. So what was the Pope to do? Well, it turns out, nothing. 796 came and went. And he didn't do a damn thing. And then 797 came and went and still nothing. Shelving tough issues, punting them down the road and hoping they'll go away, or at the very least, land in the lap of the next guy, has been a strategy for weak politicians for a very long time. But while the Pope was putting off checking his email, life was keeping King Conewolf busy back on the island. Remember what I told you about how English nobles behave when they're frustrated? Well, Conewolf was plenty frustrated. So it looks like sometime around 797, the Welsh and the Mercians were at it again. This time, they fought at Ruthlin, a fact that will interest my family because it's just down the way from my hometown of Avighele. It isn't clear how that particular battle ended, but either in that battle or in a following battle in 798, King Caradog ap Merion of Gwyneth was killed by King Conewolf and his Mercian army. This was actually a rather dodgy move for Conewolf to make because unlike his predecessors, King Caradog had brought Gwyneth in line with the Catholic Church's rule. Consequently, he ran the risk of angering the church. Luckily for King Conewolf, however, it seems that the church didn't care all that much. In fact, the extended correspondence between Mercia and the church was starting to have a positive effect and the Pope was looking favorably upon King Conewolf. It probably did help that Conewolf was taking the opportunity to denounce some of the less-than-pleasant aspects of Offa's rule, ostensibly in an attempt to present himself as a kinder, more godly Mercian king. And it worked, because despite King Adbert Prane's Frankish ties, in 798, the Pope wrote this, Quote, and concerning that letter which the most reverend and holy Ethelherd sent to us as regards that apostate cleric who mounted to the throne we excommunicate him and reject him having regard to the safety of his soul for if he should still persist in that wicked behavior be sure to inform us quickly that we may write to princes and all people dwelling on the island of britain extorting them to expel him from the most wicked rule And procure the safety of his soul. Conewolf wasn't just given sanction to retake Kent. Adebert Prain had been excommunicated. He was cut off from all Christendom. Not even Charlemagne could step in and help him out now without seriously endangering his position in the West. Game on. The Mercians immediately marshaled their forces and invaded Kent on that same year, 798. And they did what they did best. The Kentish warbands were quickly defeated and King Aidbert Prane was captured. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle paints a rather brutal picture. King Conewolf, quote, ravaged over Kent and captured Aidbert Prane, their king, and led him bound into Mercia, end quote. Though other accounts go even farther, saying that he was mutilated in some way. Some sources say blinded, and had his hands cut off. Frankly, that doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. This man had walked away from tonsuring, so if Conewolf wanted to ensure that Aidbert wasn't going to start another rebellion, but he also didn't want to kill him, this brutal act might have weirdly seemed like a sort of middle ground. Afterwards, we're told that Aidbert was led into Mercia in chains, where he was imprisoned, possibly at Winchcombe which was a religious center closely linked to Conewolf's family. This was probably not what the Pope had in mind when he sanctioned the Reconquest, and it very well could be why Alcuin suddenly became so hostile to Conewolf's rule. Abert Prane, after all, was close to the Carolingian court. Now, for the sake of completion, Roger of Wendover states that Abert was set free by Conewolf at some point as an act of clemency. But Roger was writing centuries after the fact, and he is the only source that states that, so I don't know how much stock we should place in that claim. But one thing is clear. Kent was once again under mercy and control. And much to Archbishop Aethelherd's delight, King Conewolf quickly restored him to the See of Canterbury. But Conewolf's work was just beginning. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening.